Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 50 of the Ad Nauseam podcast. Episode 50. Amazing. That's our golden anniversary. It is. Almost a, almost a full year now yes. we've been doing this stuff. You should stuff. give me a box of Twinkies or something to celebrate. I'll see what I have in my trunk. Okay. I haven't, I haven't cleaned out that trunk in ages. You got any huggable portions in there? <laughs> uh, I'll root through and see what I got All right. right there. All right. Somewhere uh, beneath the spare tire, there's an old box of... Uh, ring dings? Wheat, uh, thin wheats. Thin wheats. <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll see what I can pull, okay, out, of, I'll all right. pull out of the trunk. Um, man, today we're talking about we're talking about Aristophanes today. Yes, we are. Yeah, we're doing Athenian old comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm excited about it. In, in particular, we're talking about Aristophanes frogs. Right, right. Um, but before we get there, we have a shout. I believe you got the shout out for us. Today, I do. Right? Yes, yeah. and uh, I'll have to say, yep. this was the longest and most thorough shout out of any we have received. Uh, heretofore. Really? Yes. Lay it on us. So this individual, uh, the Reverend Angelo Valle, V-A-L-L-E, probably mispronouncing the poor guy's name. Yeah. Friend of mine, uh, he put together just a dynamite shout out here for us, is the pastor of Christ Reformed Church in Alexandria, Pennsylvania. He served there for the past eight years. He lists his wife's name, his children. It's, it's all very good. He's a minister in the PCA in the Susquehanna Valley Presbytery. And uh, he's been working hard, you know, in his calling as a, as a pastor and um, uh, a man who's working to advance the Reformed faith. You know, he tells us a little bit about his education. It's really quite impressive. He's interested in John Owen, which is mm. a, a guy that I work on. Mm-hmm. John Owen, a 17th century nonconformist theologian who wrote just a ton of Latin, actually. And uh, he's hoping, not John Owen, but uh, Reverend Valle is hoping to grow in his studies of Latin, classical literature, and casually adding gourmand in ordinary conversations. Ah, Nice excellent. job, Very Angelo. nicely. Nice he's, to throw that in there. Yeah, yeah. he's just going to drop the word gourmand around <laughs> when he has the opportunity. That's great. Well, thank you so much for listening. Um, great to hear from our listeners. Well, I got the opening quote for us. Yes, you do. Yes. Yep, I'll set you up for it. Jeff, okay. you got the opening quote? I do. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for asking. Yes. So this comes from the introduction to um, Paul Roche's, I hope I'm pronouncing that name correctly, um, his 2005 translation of, of all of Aristophanes' plays. And he writes, Aristophanes had no respect for shoddy politicians like Cleon, who plunged Athens into campaigns that led to defeat and decline and lampooned them without mercy. He himself came from a landowning family, and his political outlook was conservative. Not necessarily in favor of oligarchy. He believed that democracy was best served by the brightest minds and not by selfish, clamorous demagogues. Aristophanes' conservatism did not extend to his language, which is almost unimaginably rich and varied. The obscenity that crops up here and there is funny because it is unexpected. When one considers the milieu in which the plays were presented under the auspices of the state to the entire population at a religious festival under the presidency of a priest and on consecrated ground... How could it not be hilariously incongruous? It was as if somebody, preferably the grandest dignitary present, trumpeted a fart in a solemn moment at high mass. Ooh. So, that, I mean, to me, that's in some ways, that's Aristophanes that in gets a nutshell. It. Yeah. Yep. yep. So that's an episode. We can just stop right there. <laughs> Mr. Roche, he's uh, he's wrapped it all up for us nicely. Yeah. So I, wanna, I want to pause for a moment on mm-hmm. a couple items here. He himself, meaning... 
Aristophanes, this is part of the quote, came from a landowning family yes. and his political outlook was conservative. Yes. There's a word that has probably a dozen different definitions. Right. How would you take that word in this particular context? Well, uh, you're t- you know, Aristophanes, what made him a conservative? Yes. Yeah. By, by what light would we count him conservative? Well, I think in some ways he was, he was conservative in that he was suspicious of Athenian uh, democracy to okay. some degree, or at least at what it had become by the time he was kind of in his heyday toward the end of the fifth century. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he certainly aligns with Plato in terms of, um, you know, okay, democracy, but let's, let's at least have the best educated, right. the best prepared, um, even if he wouldn't have gone like full philosopher king. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't, he he thought that, you know, democracy, I think at its root was, well, it just means 51% can have it over on the other 49. It's, it's, it's mob rule. It quickly uh, devolves into an ochlocracy. Yes. The rule of the mob, like you're saying. Exactly, exactly. I might define Aristophanic conservatism mm-hmm. in s- similar, uh, along similar lines and say that I think Aristophanes like Cicero and John Locke and um, James Madison that followed, Aristophanes believed the purpose of the state was to preserve private property. Hmm. Full oh, stop. Okay. That's it. That's it. That's it. All right. And pretty much every uh, additional um, threat against a person or instance of injustice is in some way connected to private property. Hmm. Whether the person is property or not, you know, you should be protected in your person because you have the freedom to do, you know, with yourself as you please yes. within certain limits. Right. So certain, certainly overlap with modern modern conservatism to some degree. At uh, its best moments. Uh, yes. 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 When it's not simply the reach for power. Right. But when it's thinking about the, you know, the preservation of a sense of natural rights. Yes. The ideals of... Correct. Right. And natural law. Right. And so what's striking to me about this quote, which you, you know, dredged up for us or you, you served up for us so nicely... Mm-hmm. Uh, is that <clears throat> it shows the contrast. Aristophanes is on the one hand, right, an arch conservative. Mm. And on the other hand, some of his poetry has moments of the greatest uh, indecency on the surface. Right, right, right. Many people perhaps tend to associate, say, you know, a modern notion of conservatism with also conservatism of language. You know? Yes. It, you know, um, oh, you mean the preservation of archaisms and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or, or certainly um, being uncomfortable with with profanities. And, okay. And, and a more kind of a more kind of maybe a puritanism of, of language. That's true. Right. And in addition, you're talking about me. <laughs> in addition to uh, not liking innovation in language. Yes. Yeah. 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 Right. Jim Gaffigan, uh, a comedian we both admire, mm-hmm. doesn't speak the King James English. No. It's all slang and colloquialisms and so forth. Right. It's, it's, it's pitch and they're coming up with odd and bizarre. Portmanteaus, yes. shoving things together yeah. that don't belong, like Jerry Seinfeld, mm-hmm. you know, soup Nazi. This is not high diction, right? But Aristophanes, you know, politically very conservative, and there's just endless verbal fireworks, right, in his plays. So, like I said last week when we were uh, getting ready to do this episode, yeah, you know, I don't like to really work blue, so yeah. this is going to be a little bit of stretch for me. But I admire Aristophanes. I do too. He's a genius. He's a genius comedy. and phenomenally. Brave, mm-hmm. uh, kind of that that pulling no punches. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the, the the fact that he was not only caustically mocking the politicians of his day, but it's very likely that these politicians were sitting in the front row, right, of the theater as he did it to now, their they faces. Could, they could laugh at themselves a little bit. But they could. He was not sparing anybody. No, and he did get in trouble. And there's a lot, of course, that we don't know about him. But it does seem at the end of the day he was untouchable. 
Yeah, I think that um, the first fine he incurred is that he used to buy whoopee cushions at the dollar store <laughs> by the case. Yeah. And I think they just raised the price on him arbitrarily. They did. Just right off the top. Right, exactly. So there was way too many drachma. Exactly. Uh, right, right. <laughs> he had to take his business elsewhere. That's right. He was deflated, you might say. <laughs> oh, man. Yes, 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 yes. All right, so what are we giving the audience today? That was a pretty long... Um, wind up wasn't right. it okay. so i mean I, I think the careful listener will already know what's in store for them but okay. we're, we're going to talk about uh we're going to talk about old comedy we're going to talk about aristophanes how he's really while well, he is the only representative of athenian old comedy that's whose work survives yes. um and we, then, we have names if i'm interrupt yeah and names of others in fragments right but plato mentions a bunch of them mm-hmm. but we don't have any actual no uh, plays. But a, n- a number of uh, 11 plays of Aristophanes survive. So we're going to talk uh, a little bit uh, briefly about old comedy and its place in the 5th century, but then we're going to get down to brass tacks, mm-hmm. as they say, and talk about the frogs, yes. uh, which is my favorite of his plays. For me, it's right up there with the clouds. Clouds. That's Frog, my, that's frogs my close too. Or clouds. Yes. Okay. Yep. So who was Aristophanes, Dr. Winkle? Well, we don't know a ton about him. In fact, you know, Roche mentions that he was um, came from a landowning family, so he was uh, elite. So in terms, uh, probably some of his suspicion of democracy was probably also rooted in wanting to kind of, you know, hold on to family power. Should other people be able to take his property right. without his permission? Right. No, no, of course Get not. off my lawn. Right. <laughs> That's right, right. We know that he rubbed elbows with Plato and Socrates. I yes. believe he shows up in Plato's symposium. He is there. Yeah. And he's hilarious in yep. the symposium. Right. So he, he, As he, we might expect. He wasn't like, you know, you hear about some kind of comedians who they have a stage persona and then off the stage, they're just you know shy and. and yeah, you know, we're talking about you here. No, not at all. I'm, I'm the life of the party all the time. Um, <laughs> so born in 446. Yes. So uh, that's it means right in the middle of, kind of uh, yes. the high point of Periclean Athens. Yes. Yep. The Pentecontitea, the yep. 50 year stretch before the plague hit. Right. And uh, he lived to 386. So how, how old is that? Six, um, Sixty years. Sixty years. Yeah. Yep. Not not a long life by contemporary standards, but. Filled with uh, literary brilliance, right? And so, I mean, his his um, his chronology overlaps with, yeah, you know, kind of roughly uh, Sophocles and Euripides. Well, that's that's germane to the play we'll be talking about mm-hmm. today. Um, and so, he was writing most of his plays during the Peloponnesian War, what we call the Peloponnesian right. War, and a lot of them have a very uh, anti-war bent Def- to them. Definitely, Fro- Frogs is not one of these. Um, but um, and well, we're, we're going to talk about that later. A little too, bit, aren't yeah. We? yeah, yeah, yeah. About some of the the politics of Aristophanes, right? You might say, right, right. And so we'll return to this question of, mm-hmm. of kind of what does it mean for him to be a conservative? Yep, yep. And he was influential as well, right? Uh, Plato in his portrayal of Socrates in the Clouds, mm-hmm. he really says that um, Socrates' demise is attributable to the caricature the, or the caricature, if you want. That Aristophanes presents of Socrates. Right. So even in, in uh, the Apology, in yes. Socrates' defense speech, Socrates brings it up. He says, you you might be thinking not of me, but of the character in the play of Aristophanes. Swinging up in this basket. Right. You know, saying all kinds of ridiculous things. At the thinkery shop. The, right. The frontisterion. Right. Which is really interesting. It reminds me of, of how often, you know, uh, you'll hear um, people meeting their favorite celebrities and expecting them to be like their character on the sitcom, right? Yes. And then being shocked that, you know, they're human beings. I have a couple of brushes with celebrity like this. Do uh, do we have time to talk about that? I don't know. It's our show. Okay, well, go mention, would you? Okay, yeah. so there's an NBC personality mm-hmm. uh, whom I met in, oh, the year was 1998. Okay. 
And it was uh, in Iowa during the political season. Yes. And this NBC personality now is big time. Okay. This is before she? She she wasn't big time then. Okay. She's pretty big. Mm. But she walked up to the place where I was, you know, purveying, uh, promoting political things. And Mm -hmm. she told me her name. And I had no idea who she was. (laughs) She said, "Um, I'm so-and-so. I said, that's great. I'm so-and-so. She said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm so-and-so. I said, well, I'm still the person I was last. I no idea. What, are we, can we say this person's name? I don't you, think so. No? No? Okay. No. Oh, wow. But the bird is associated with Hera. I'll say that much. The so. bird is associated with... Oh. Ah. Yeah. Okay. So it's an NBC personality. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. So that's I, once crossed, I once crossed the street uh, next to David Schwimmer. Oh, from Ross Friends. from Friends. Yes. Right. Yeah. Tiny. That's all I'll say about him. Like, Not a big man. Not a big man. I'm guessing he's you, diminished in your eyes. If you well, I think if you saw probably his stats online, they've probably been inflated a little bit. I think I think I did. Somebody once told him that he was listed as six foot. Not a chance. Not a chance. No, five four. Huh. Five four in heels. Wow. Yeah. That's, was he wearing heels at the time? Yeah, I don't know. But he, I was walking across Michigan Avenue in, in Chicago and looked to my left, and there's hmm. there's Ross. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So, Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. That's apropos of. of Pretty much nothing. Well, uh, yeah. there is going to be some uh, costume changes later on in this episode. Thank you for tying You're welcome that together. If, if they pay attention. <laughs> Eleven surviving plays. Here are some of the titles. Yep. The Acarnians, which means the charcoal makers. Yep. That's one of my favorites. Which which he came out with. He was 21. Huh, 21. Incredible. Youngin. Yep. At 21, I was eating a bag of Doritos. That was, <laughs> that was my aspiration. Which you kept in a pillowcase? Yeah. <laughs> That's a reference to another episode. <laughs> right. The Knights, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Clouds, the Wasps. The Wasps is, like many of his, about the litigious nature of Athenian society. Yes. They were always suing each other right. for the silliest things. Mm-hmm. And he pilloried them. Right. Have you uh, sued anyone lately? I've never sued anyone ever. Really? Never. There's still time. Okay. Then The Peace, right? Yep. Which was about peace with Sparta, which he hoped to you know, encourage. The Birds, which is a philosophical... And it's utopian cloud cuckoo land. That's right. right. Yeah. Some unpronounceable Greek sounds in that in that play. Yeah, the uh, Lysistrata or the Lysistrata. Mm-hmm. Uh, women feature large in that one. Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. Yep. The Thesmophoria Zeusai, which is almost as fun to say as Wawatanango. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the frogs, which we're going to deal with today. The Ecclesia Zeusai, which I admit I've never read. Nope. nope. And uh, wealth is the last last one, one which is Plutos. We think is. Possibly, probably his last play. Okay. Yep. So where, Jeff, did old comedy come from? Well, it's like tragedy. Its origins are a bit shadowy. When you go back that far, you know, you're dealing with kind of rumor and foggy tradition. Yeah. But the idea is that it probably developed out of what the Greeks called the komos. Okay. Which was kind of a loud, drunken song. Mm. um, And it developed into um, kind of loud, drunken songs, which told a story. Mm -hmm. And then um, over time, it kind of developed into, into alongside of tragedy alongside the kind of straight drama um, as kind of a side stage mm-hmm. to tragedy. And then it became really popular and had its own festivals and its own contests. Seems like a little bit of a just-so story. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So, how the tiger got its stripes. Right. How the zebra got its tail. Yeah. Something like that. Right. I think that, you know, you think about tragedy as is, is we think tragedy had its roots in the dithyram. Mm-hmm. You know, this this hymn sung to Dionysus and then it kind of, the chorus grows and then actor steps out. And it kind of it grows from there. I think there's maybe we can't connect all the dots, but there's probably some truth to, to comedy kind of beginning in a in a kind of loud, boisterous performance, mm-hmm. and then uh, taking on a life of its own. Who yes. knows? Yep, that's the comos. Yep, Aristotle, 
whom I like to call, as everyone knows, the best biologist who ever talked about literature, yes, says that um, comedy represents men and women as worse than they are in real life. Yes. The tragedy is higher, comedy is lower. Right. If you throw Euripides into that mix, I might quibble with that a little bit. Okay, got, quibble. Go ahead. Well, I, mean, quibbling. You know, I think Euripides, I think Aristotle would agree, doesn't always show men mm-hmm. better than they are. I think I think when Aristotle wrote that, he was probably thinking of Sophocles. Okay. Um, but I think that there's a broad truth to that. Have yeah. you seen this internet genre of people are amazing, uh, epic fails, when, when they're shoved together? No, I have not so, seen this. Oh, this is great. Really? It's comedy and tragedy, I realize now. Yeah. So the first clip is someone doing three flips on a motocross bicycle yeah. and hitting a perfect landing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are amazing. That's that's tragedy. Nobody could ever do that. Right. And then the next clip is someone attempting it and falling flat on his face, you know, with potential for great personal yes. injury. I see. And they, so they're they just shoved, shoved together. together. That sounds very... That it, sounds it's a juxtaposition. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where were these comedies performed? Um, again, we don't know a lot about uh, their their origins, uh, but uh, eventually it developed to the point where uh, they became so popular they got their own festival, the Lanaya. Okay. And so to win as the best comedian at the Lanaya was was uh, analogous to being the the best tragedian at the Dionysia. Okay. Because the Olympics of uh, the Lanaya was like the Olympics of comedy. Mm-hmm. And so um, Aristophanes made his name there. Wow. Yep. So. So uh, the, the chorus. Mm-hmm. We, we got to talk a little bit about the chorus. I didn't cut you off. Did no, I? no, 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 no. I'm, I'm happy to do that. Yeah. <laughs> the chorus uh, in tragedy is usually made up of the elders, who are right? Mm-hmm. The wise men of this of the polis, yes. who give advice on a number of different things, as in, say, Oedipus Rex. You know, they they counsel at the end of the play. Mm-hmm. They tell Oedipus as he's on his way out of uh, Thebes. They tell him. Don't count your life happy until it's finished, you right. know, because the gods can pull the rug out from underneath. All that's helpful, very helpful. That's exactly what Oedipus wants to hear at the moment, <laughs> yeah. right? right? Right. So, so that's the, you know, that's the baseline mm-hmm. for um, a chorus. What does Aristophanes do with that? Well, he he turns it on its head, right? So, whereas a, a tragic chorus kind of gives advice, or sometimes just kind of they're there to kind of worry about stuff. Yeah, back in my day, kind of stuff. Exactly. Uh, the comic chorus is antagonistic. Right. They're there to kind of make life terrible for the hero <laughs> uh, or the anti-hero, whatever you want to call them. And the frogs, of course, is, is perhaps the best example of this. Yeah. Yep. So, who who makes up the chorus in some of the other plays? Yeah. Or or I mean, in fact, each play is named after after the co- well, except for maybe wealth and peace. Many of Strata, the, yeah. yeah, many of the of the comedies take their name from, from the, the composition chorus. of the chorus, right? Which may again point to their uh, their historical origins. Mm. They began as, as choral songs, mm. um, but yeah, the chorus the choruses in comedy tend to be yeah more absurdist. You have frogs, birds, the the clouds themselves in clouds are, uh, are the chorus. So here is where one of my students of years past might ask, mm-hmm. God bless them, and wait a minute, how can clouds constitute a chorus? How can they talk? Well, I mean, that's all part of the kind of the absurdist, absurdist fantasy, right? Yes. You've got to give yourself over to this, right? So that's a meteorological question, uh, right? It is a meteorological That's not a literary question. No. I don't have to answer that as the, you know, the instructor in this class. Right. Aristophanes answered by saying that it's, uh, it's, it's actually um, meteorological flatulence. That's what's going on up there. Right. So the gods are suffering bouts of indigestion, more or less, and the clouds come out and yes. speak their will. Brap, pap, 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 he puts it. Yes, right. exactly right. So on the rare occasions where I've I've taught this this stuff in class, you know, one of the things I like to talk about is oh, what would be kind of a modern corollary. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot of stuff 
that the Greeks found funny that just does not translate uh, to us today, or it's, it's so specific to a moment that right. it's lost. Um, but is there anything like it? And I would say that probably, I would say probably the closest thing that we have today is something like South Park. There's mm. things that like animation can get away with. Never seen it. You never seen South Park. Never seen it. What, really? Told you I don't like to work blue. It's it's not that blue. Okay. I, well, I could maybe have a different threshold for that. Maybe. But, but South Park often kind of engages in very direct kind of political commentary. Okay. But it's in this absurdist, wild, weird fashion with kind of these crude, uh, almost like uh, felt cutout animation. Um, and so they, you know, animation like like The Simpsons, which I know you're a big fan. Oh of, yes, right. You can get away with lots of different stuff in animation that you could never do in straight drama. You can you can quickly go off on some kind of absurdist tangent, but it makes sense within the medium of animation. Absolutely, right. Absolutely. Yep. So these plots similarly are characterized by absurdist fantasy. Yes, there are some some of them are just bizarrely weird, full of right. broken illusions, mm-hmm. direct address to the audience, right? right? breaking what they call the fourth wall. Right. There's an apocryphal story um, where uh, Aristophanes was, was putting on a play and uh, the characters are arguing about how ugly Socrates is, <laughs> right? And they both agree that he's ugly, but they disagree about the, the degree. Extent, Extent sure. right. It's common. It's, so uh, they can't, it's the agon in the play they're arguing, so they can't reach a conclusion, so they actually uh, say, well, I think he's here. <laughs> and he stands up and apparently, I mean, by all accounts, Socrates had a pretty good uh, sense of humor about himself. Oh, yeah. Right? You know, he knew he that said he said the gods made him ugly on purpose so that the contrast between his physical appearance, hmm. and, and, appearance and the truth that he conveyed would be more uh, sharp. Right, right, exactly. And many people compared him to, a, he looked like a satyr, and, mm-hmm. right? Um, pug, pug nose. Mm-hmm. And he kind of walked funny and rolled his eyes uh, when he when he talked. Mm-hmm. But to picture Clan, him... A Clancy Wiggum kind of person. Exactly, exactly right. But to imagine him kind of you know, standing up in the theater so everybody can have a good laugh at him <laughs> and make him part of the show, breaking that fourth wall, it's brilliant. It is brilliant. Mm-hmm. So do you have an example of one of these... Absurdist fantasies, other than the one you just gave, an additional example right. to help so, flesh it out for so the audience. A, a notable one is, uh, and again, it's, it strikes me as just absurdity for its own sake, is in his play uh, Peace, uh, the hero Trageus has to go consult with the gods um, up on Olympus. But instead of having him climb on Olympus, he flies up there on the back of a giant dung beetle. Mm. And why not? Right. I mean, how they would have staged this? We know that you know, as the fifth century went on, the 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 it's uh, all CGI. I mean, the characters were in green suits, and <laughs> right, 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 green screen, and right. But it must have been something like you know, the instead of the Deus Ex Machina, you know, coming down from the heavens, let's haul Trageus up on this big uh, paper mache beetle, yeah, up to the top. I wonder what that would have looked like. Huh. It must have been just bizarre, incredible. Yep, kind of like the antics that uh, are staged at a rock concert. Uh, are you thinking of something specific? Like, what? Uh, like, didn't Peter Frampton used to release like a pink pig? A pig pig, yes, the big inflatable like pig. Right, right. right. Those, it's shooting people out of cannons. Yeah. And pyrotechnic stuff, you know. Yeah. I understand Mr. Frampton's quite a guitarist, I don't know. But he is, yes. If you can't carry it just on the basis of your musicianship, you lard a lot of special effects in, is that right? I think so. I, well, to my mind is that my, I, I'm probably going to lose a lot of fans here, but, but my my stance is that if you have to have backup dancers... <laughs> you're probably not that much worth you're not worth listening to. Yeah, and right. you should know, listener, that uh, Dr. Winkle maintains in each of our private conversations that his taste is impeccable. It is impeccable. I like about five songs total. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you sometime what his least favorite songs are. That's that's a topic for Those another are the day. ones I happen to like. <laughs> All right, so he sends up, uh, Aristophanes does, prominent men in Athenian society, no civic figure, no class, no occupation, not even the Athenian populace as a whole 
was safe from this kind of vicious attack. Which I, I love, right? I, I think there's something to kind of this idea that um, one measure of how free a society is is how free their comedy is. Like, okay. What what can you laugh at? What can't you laugh at? Well, this is a theme that has come out in the last couple of years, actually, of political conflict in this country. Sure. And in the United States. And that is some of the individuals that you would never have thought would be conservative or traditional in any way, and, and they're still probably not, mm-hmm. have nevertheless been saying, look, in order to practice our craft as comedians, we need to be able to make fun of everybody. Yes. Sacred cows on the left, sacred cows on the right. Yeah. Nobody can be off limits. Right, right. I'm sympath- deeply sympathetic to that. As am I. There was kind of this idea floating around that comedy should always punch up, as they say, right? What, what does that mean? That means that you aim your comedy at those in with power and privilege and wealth, mm. right? It should never punch down, mm-hmm. uh, which I totally disagree with. Po- a comedy should punch in all directions, which I think is just another way of saying... It's like what, a multi-purpose what, puncher? Exactly, right. Some kind of a spinning machine with boxing gloves on it. Right, right, <laughs> right. So uh, I, I am... No, a, no targets are safe. No, exactly. I'm a, more or less kind of a free speech absolutist. Mm-hmm. And so I think that applies to comedy as well. And mm-hmm. so that, I think that's one of the reasons I love Aristophanes so much is that we've talked about... Uh, both on the podcast and on the podcast is that, you know, we're not here to kind of idealize ancient Athens as some kind of golden no. age to return to. No. But there is something remarkable about, like in this case, the political freedom. Yes. That was there. And you if know, you love freedom and you love free expression, this was a uniquely, I know people will say, well, it only applied to land owning males. Yeah. Okay, that's true. Yeah. Uh, but still, it, it was extensive in, in, that, in that category. And he's aiming his canon at privileged land-owning males. Right. He the, does not spare members no. of his own class. So I would argue to some extent that I think Aristophanic comedy is a much freer comedy than we have in our in mm-hmm. America today. Well, maybe that's a gap you can fill there, Winkle. Oh, man. Man. Uh, no, not my job. Okay. I'm just, I'm just here to complain about it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So that's uh, that's the setup, right? That's the setup, the, yeah. the last item is the transition to middle comedy and then new comedy. Yeah. So we have names like Menander. Which is, I think, in some ways, in middle comedy, the only name. Well, there's yeah. Diphilus. Diphilus? There's two guys, Menander and Diphilus. Diphilus, his stuff that survives, or is he just fragments, a name? Fragments, okay, fragments. In okay. fact, uh, there might be one entire play of Diphilus that was discovered within our lifetimes. Dunder Diflin. Oh, come on. I, I have no, okay. This is good stuff. Is good stuff this is the comedy of manners mm-hmm. this is uh theophrastus characters so mm. theophrastus the the heir of uh, aristotle wrote these character sketches so it's all character-based comedy there's no verbal fireworks it's all how do people act strange in certain circumstances how do they play the type so but we're getting down to kind of a more watered down domestic comedy okay though, it's, right? n- it's not as funny yeah. this is the kind of comedy in which a guy crosses a street right he's yeah. just a a tourist gawker, and he brushes elbows with some famous celebrity, and he comments on the individual's height. Oh, really? That's the kind. That sounds of, pretty funny. <laughs> that's the kind I'd of watch that psychological comedy of manners. <laughs> but it's very different than Aristophanes. Very different. We'll do a, we'll do an episode yeah. on Menander right. at some point. There's no way that an Aristophanes would have kept his head connected to his body in Rome if he was oh, going to. No. If he was going to, you know, imagine him doing this to Nero. Oh, right. Lucan, you know, was oh, of, apparently of f- forced into suicide for much less than this. Right. Petronius, too. Yes, yeah. Seneca as well. Yep. Right. So that's, uh, we've set the stage now. We're yeah. going to get right down to the nitty gritty, aren't we? Yes. We're going to do this uh, after the break. That's right, Jeff. It's coming up after the break.
This episode is brought to you by Racial Coffee. Racial Coffee in Portland, Oregon. Mark Helwig and his team have put together two fantastic coffee machines. Yes, they have. The Ratio 6 and the Ratio 8. I've got the Ratio 6. You've got the 8. Um, it makes every morning for me a pleasure. Mm-hmm. I love the coffee that comes out of those things. It's um, it's a beautiful work of art. It's beautiful to work to look at. And the coffee is second to none. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your morning coffee ritual, Jeff. Take take us through it for our listeners. So I usually try, I think we, we've disagreed about this. I usually try to have the, the coffee ready to go the night before. Yes. Yeah. Your purest uh, bona fides are a little bit in doubt. There. I know. So most people would say you grind the beans right at the you moment. You grind them right. right at the moment. I don't do that. But okay. the machine compensates for any any downfall there. So that's what I, in the morning I can come in, shuffle in, hit the button and it immediately goes into the bloom stage where all of that horrible CO2 is off gassed uh, into the brew stage where the water comes down through the Fibonacci head um, into the- 200 degrees Fahrenheit, 200, right? Right, exactly. It's incredible. And that's a, the, does the eight have kind of the double ca- carafe? You have the kind of the- th- No, the, the, the eight has the single. I've had you over for, I, for the big brouhaha, didn't I? I don't think, I, I don't think I've ever, ever actually seen your eight in, huh. in action. No. Yeah, no. Well, yeah. So I have, a, I have the ceramic cone okay. that goes on top. And then inside of it, I use a stainless steel cone. So the uh, the ratio eight comes with a borosilicate hand blown glass carafe. Yes. But I've quickly replaced it with a, a ratio issue stainless steel carafe, like you have. Yes. Right. Yeah. So yeah. then you have the ceramic portion on the top that holds the cone, and that's where the coffee comes down through. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Do you use a paper cone? I use a paper cone. Okay. So I will graduate to the big leagues one of these days. Well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I love the six. It's um, <clears throat> it's the best coffee I've ever I've ever brewed. Right. And Mrs. Winkle enjoys it as well. She I does. Think. Probably even more so than me. She's yeah. much more of a coffee aficionado than I am. So she sure. loves it. Yep. So you got the bloom. Yep. You got the brew. Yes. And then when the little LED light moves over to ready. It, I think it blinks three times and you're you, good to go. You're in coffee bliss at yeah. that point. So what can our listeners, how can they benefit? Well, they need to go to ratiocoffee.com, yes. R-A-T-I-O, it's a great Latin word, coffee.com, and pick out the coffee machine of their choice. The six comes in three colors, mm-hmm. right? It's got the stainless steel, the black matte, and the white. Yep. Which one do you have? I now? have the stainless steel. Right. Beautiful okay. machine. Yep. Excellent machine. Put that in your shopping basket, and when you get to the, the checkout you got to enter the coupon code. Yes, A-N-C-O. That's right. You'll get 15% off. The ratio six. Yes. Just for Ad Nauseam listeners, A-N-C-O. Check it out. This episode of Ad Nauseam also brought to you by Ad Astra Roasters. Ad Astra Roasters is a veteran-owned specialty coffee roaster located in Hillsdale, Michigan, founded in Kansas in 2018. Ad Astra Roasters takes its name from the Kansas state motto, Ad Astra Per Aspera, to the stars through adversity. Which blends do you like? You know it, Jeff. Tenebris. Tenebris, still your favorite? Dark shadows of coffee. Yes. I love a rich, strong coffee. Same uh, here. Real strong flavor. You know, kind of a a coffee that'll clear the fog out of your mind in yes, the morning and fo- focus your eyes intently. I love that one. Yep. Yeah. I, I've liked, I've loved everything that Ad Astra has um, allowed us to, to sample mm-hmm. the Las Lajas Microlot, the mm-hmm. Mojotenango, great stuff all around. The poetry series is also a really great option for those wanting to read a great poem while drinking even better coffee. So what you need to do, listener, is head to oddastroroasters.com. I guess I'm getting a little bossy. I, sh- I should give it more play. <laughs> Polite. What we'd like you to do, gentle listener, there we go. is head to Ad Astra Roasters, A-D-A-S-T-R-A, roasters.com, and get 10% off when you put in the coupon code A-N-A-A at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. With offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Indianapolis, Indiana, Hackett has been offering the public 
very high quality and yet affordable translations of the classics and a broad range of literature for over 40 years. Yeah. Yeah, I know what, what my, one of the things my students complain about the most is the cost of tes- textbooks, right? Yes. And, and steep. Really steep, yeah. Um, but, but not at Hackett. Not at Hackett. Their editions are, like you said, affordable and high quality. And that's a hard um, needle to thread. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What kinds of uh, titles do you like, Jeff, in the catalog? I've loved Lombardo's translation of the Odyssey, mm-hmm. uh, which I've used for years. Right. Um, their translations of um, of the Bacchae. I just uh, picked up myself a couple months ago. Their uh, they have a new translation of the Frogs, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's 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 great stuff. Mm-hmm. Doesn't doesn't uh, break the bank. No. And I love ha- love having the stuff on my shelf. Right. We read uh, some of uh, their translation of Gorgias right. from, from the 1980s on a previous episode. That's right. And cool. I was uh, quite pleasant surprised at the quality of the translation after you know 30 years or so right still very current yep and they got um so tons of stuff from classical antiquity yep. but from many other latin regions american studies yes pretty much everything modern philosophy you name it yep so listeners if you go to hackettpublishing.com h-a-c-k-e-t-t publishing.com find the books you want you enter the coupon code AN2021. Dave, what do they get? They get, you ready for this? I'm ready. 20% off. That's huge. 20% off. Yeah, but that's not all. You're not going to, well, let me just okay, please expostulate go yes? for a moment. You're not going to get that kind of a discount at virtually any other bookseller. Nope, no way. It's incredible. And here comes the the even better part, free shipping. Free shipping. Yeah, uh, you can't you can't go wrong. These no, guys, you can't. These guys have been with us from the beginning, right? Um, They're supporters of the classics. Yes, big time, and they they do it uh, better than anyone I know. Absolutely, check it out. All right, Jeff. As yeah. we get back into it now, after the break, mm-hmm. we're ready to read some Aristophanes. Yes, in Greek and in Latin. That's right. In Latin. Did I say Greek and Latin? In Latin? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> no. And, Greek and, and English. Greek and English. Yes, breathe easy, audience. Right, right. So, yeah, we're talking about uh, the frogs. <laughs> and um, You're laughing even before we get started. I, I know, exactly. This is great, this is great stuff. Um, so this is a, a play uh, that Aristophanes um, produced in 405 BC. 405. So, so this was... Go ahead. Yeah, towards the end of his career, we're getting towards the end of the the Peloponnesian War. Yes, toward the end of uh, what the first modern war, as as some people like to call it, yep. right? Yeah, the first time that these two uh, countries, these two city states, uh, were pitted against each other in terrible bloodshed and right extended slaughter. Yeah, and when this play comes out, things are not going well for for Athens. No, they're about to suffer the uh, the thirty tyrants. Right, right. With the the next year, mm-hmm. next year, but this uh, some some levity. Uh, before mm-hmm. all that goes down. So I love the premise of this. I mean, even the premise of this play makes me laugh. On its own. On its own. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the play centers around Dionysus, the god of tragedy, the god of comedy himself, is he is disturbed by the quality of tragedy. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason that he's upset is that uh, Sophocles and Euripides have just died. Mm-hmm. And uh, we know that this is, this is true. They died within a few months of each other the previous year in 406. Dionysus says, these guys are gone. Uh, everybody who's left is no good. So he decides, well, I'm a god. I'm going to go down into Hades. And I'm going to bring Euripides back because mm-hmm. that's at, at least as the play begins. That's his favorite. Mm-hmm. And um, so we're talking about the big three here. Yes, it's Aeschylus, mm-hmm. Sophocles, 
and Euripides. Right. So Aeschylus died in, I think, believe 456, so a number of years before this. Right. But 50 he's years the, on. He's the old guard. He's the old guard, first generation. And then Sophocles and Euripides are contemporaries, and they die very yes. close to one another. Euripides yep. dies a little bit before. Is that what I was yeah, trying to remember? Even yeah. though Euripides is quite a bit younger than Sophocles, yes. he dies uh, a year before yeah. Sophocles, yes. who dies as a very old man. Right, right, right. So the play opens with that, with Dionysus and his clever slave, mm-hmm. uh, Xanthius. Uh, they're on their way down to try to... Well, Dionysus doesn't quite know how to get there. He wants to go I wants to go down into Hades and bring Euripides back because all the other tragedians left um, mm-hmm. uh, do it, applying their trade are terrible. Yeah, and Xanthius is a name that means yellow, basically. So it could be something like pinky, maybe? Pinky. It's, I like it's, that. It's, yeah. The color is supposed to just kind of be absurdist, I think. It's just right. kind of silly. It is. But we also have kind of that classic comic conceit where the hero is a buffoon. Right. And the... Um, the hero being Dionysus. Dionysus. Right. And the slave, who's got maybe the ridiculous name, is actually the one... He's who, the wise one. Who knows what's going on. Absolutely. Right. It's a, that's, a, that's a can't miss. Oh, uh, it's, that's a, it's, it's a great. can't miss setup. Right. So we set up scene one here, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So we entered Dionysus and Xanthius from one side of the stage, slowly moving toward a door on the other. Mm-hmm. Dionysus is dressed like Heracles, carrying a club and wearing a lion skin over a bright, frilly yellow cloak. And frilly, wearing, yes. And wearing tall, delicate leather boots. He is followed by his slave Xanthius, who grunts and plods along, weighed down by a ridiculous number of bags. He notices the crowd... And speaks. And speaks. And we should say that you know none of these you know, the surviving manuscripts have stage directions like this. So this, this is what you're putting in. This is, yeah, this is speculative, right? Right. And we should we should tell the audience this is an original Winkle here. It is. Yeah. yeah. You it, translate. When did you translate this? This is maybe maybe eight years ago. Okay. So. But so much fun. So much. But really, really difficult. Um, and you, we'll see along the ways as we read this. I, I you know you. I took some liberties. You of all people well, taking some liberties. I think to I think to translate Aristophanes to a modern audience, you have no choice. Okay. If it was a straight, if it was a straight kind of one to one kind of thing, it would not be funny at all. It would read like some of the nineteenth century translations. Right. Hey, well, let's do some of this. All uh, right. Hey, who do you want to be? I'm going to give you the choice: Xanthius uh, or Dionysus. You know, um, which author has the fewest number of uh, profane and obscene and vituperative jokes? Um. Well, uh, it's. It's a dead heat. It's a dead heat. <laughs> so let's distinguish for our audience the difference between profanity and obscenity. Okay, please do. Is it we pause for some pedantry? Yeah, okay. Okay, so obscenity is what takes place, you know, in front of the um, scene, right? Ab and skynum. It's, yes. It's the kind of ridiculous barnyardish kind of humor. Yes. That's obscenity. Mm-hmm. Profanity is treating something holy as though it's yes. ridiculous. It takes place in front of the, sh- the shrine, excuse me, right. profanum. Yes, exactly. So I'm fairly comfortable with obscenity, yes. you know, in controlled doses. Yes. Not quite as comfortable with, with profanity. profanity. Well, what do you make of, of, I mean, the idea of Aristophanes treating this god like an idiot? Isn't that profane? Well, I don't mind profaning false gods. Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> I do that all, all right, day. All right. But it, I, it's worth noting that. by Zeus, by Jupiter. The very, the, the very premise that Aristophanes put forward uh, for an Greek would have been considered at least profane on some level. Yeah, that's right? true, because right. they really believed in these gods. Yes, they did. Fortunately, I don't, so it doesn't okay. count as profanity. So prof- Let's profane go. away. All right. All right. So, so you didn't choose a guy. Uh, I'll be Xanthius. Please, start, it up, start us off. Holy crap, master. It's an audience. Should I say something? How about one of my classic gags that always leaves them rolling in the aisles? Oh, all right, I guess. Only none of those ones where you keep saying you have to whiz. Good heavens, those are stale. Um, okay. What about any of my other ones? I have added, except the one where you're prancing about holding your butt cheeks, screaming about how you've got to fertilize the landscape. I'm going to blow! I'm going to blow! So not funny anymore. (laughs) So it's already... 
very juvenile yes uh from the beginning so there's a name for this kind of humor uh what's the name you're thinking of? scatological scatological yes scatological that yes. which has to do with the bathroom right and it's it's my theory that scatological humor is funny at every age really i have yet to meet a person very young very old who doesn't laugh at bodily functions and the noises they make yeah you're talking about you're talking about men yeah, there's plenty of women, I think. that Really? Yes. No, I, I don't think it chooses a, really? a gender. Well, we'll have to disagree about that. Okay. okay. We've been here before. I'm getting deja vu. We've talked nah, about this nah, before. Nah. So how does <laughs> Grandma Winkle feel about these things? <laughs> Let's not go there. All right. All there. right. What, what, I also, I, what I love about this is Dionysus and Xanthius are aware that they're in a play, right? Xanthius notices there's an audience. Hey, there's an audience. He goes, I got to do one of my my usual snappy jokes, right? right. These things open in a particular way. Right. And he says to Dionysus, well, which which gag should I use? I mean, it's so self-aware. Right. It's so interesting. There's nothing like this. You are just enthusing all over the set. I love this stuff. I love this stuff. Yes. (laughs) Right. So So set up the next one. Yeah. So um, Dionysus is, one of the reasons he's dressed like Heracles, or the reason is that he knows that Heracles went down to get Cerberus, right? So he says, well, this guy knows... Um, his way around Hades. Right. And so I'm going to dress like him, I'm going to act like him, and then uh, actually go to his house mm-hmm. to get some advice about how to go down there. So okay. they go to Heracles' um, house. Shea Heracles. Shea Heracles, because he's been there before, down in Hades, and um, they have uh, a, a, a riotous, um, ridiculous back and okay. forth. Can I be Heracles here? You continue on as Dionysus. Right. So in this, in this, uh, in this scene, um, Dionysus is trying to explain to Heracles how much he loves Euripides, mm. you know, how much he, he's trying to express how deep his longing to bring back the dead Euripides. Right. And Heracles is very skeptical about it. And this. Heracles is kind of a dunderhead. Right? He, he is. He's kind of a dunderhead, but even he comes out uh, intellectually better than Dionysus okay. in the scene. So Heracles is having none of it. And so Dionysus says, don't make fun of me, brother. I'm feeling faint. This urge, I tell you. Go on, little brother. Explain it to me. I uh, don't know if I can. Let me see. Have you ever... Say had a deep craving for say a big heaping of beeping, heaping bowl of beef and bean stew. <laughs> Only about a gazillion times. So you get that? Should I try another metaphor? No, sir. When you talk beef and bean stew, you're talking my language. Well, okay then. Well, your desire for beef and bean stew is like my deep longing for Euripides. Really? Euripides? He's dead and you still have an urge for him? I have to find him and no one's gonna stop me. <laughs> So, so now we get some sense of the plot. Yeah, we do. Okay. Right. So again, he's playing a part. You know, so Heracles is—he's one of those rare characters who has a, a you know a tragic mythic side, but he also has kind of a ridiculous comic persona where he's constantly interested in drinking and eating. Mm-hmm. So Dionysus and says, carousing and carousing, and so he says, yeah. So he he compares uh, his longing to Euripides to to stew. Okay. Yep. So now we get to the famous chorus of the frogs, yes. right? Dionysus hitches a ride with Charon. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the guy that takes people across the sticks, and as they are rowing toward Hades, he encounters a hostile chorus. The chorus, the chorus of frogs, which gives the play its name. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, in terms of its, you know, its connection to the plot, it doesn't really have one. But that's not the point. It was kind of a, it was a, you know, a high. Um, this was kind of the the show stopping number, all right, right. And like we were saying uh, before, the the course is is not giving advice to the hero, 
but directly antagonistic to the hero. So they so quickly this is, drive Dynasty crazy. Got it. So this is like, can you feel the love tonight? It, yes. In it, the Lion King. Exactly right. And, You're surprised. And as irritating. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. So clip number three, we got the chorus of frogs here, don't we? We got the chorus of frogs versus Dionysus. Okay. okay let, so, let me be the frogs. Oh, please do. Okay. Did you want to be the frogs? No, no, no. This is great. All right. You ready? Yep. Brekekekekskoaxkoax. My rear would like to raise an objection and fart, if you will, in your general direction. Stop it, you song-loving meddlesome hacks. If anything, sir, we'll sing all the more loudly, raucous and randy and pious and proudly. With the sun beating down, we leap through the rushes, and when Zeus sends the rain, we dare it to touch us by diving straight down to the cold, murky bottom. And even down there, the songs, yes, we got them. We send from the deep on the sly on the double till they break on the surface in big croaking bubbles. Brekkekex, coax, coax, crap, now I'm spewing it out my thorax. We got to turn the page. We do. (laughs) Turn the page. Can we hire someone to turn the pages? We need page turners. All right. When you say it, it sounds like the worst kind of treacle. When we sing it, it's good. But from you, it's just fecal. Fecal, you say. Strange you should mention, because that happens to be my rump's present intention. Brekekekex, skoax, skoax. And it goes on in that general fashion. So again, lots of scatological obscenity. A lot of potty humor. Right, exactly. Barnyard stuff. So Winkle, this is is a good translation. Thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm liking this. This is a little Seussian. It is. A little Swiftian. It's hard to kind of avoid, at least for me, to those kind of iambics. Of course, in the Greek, it's not rhyming. No. But there's no, a no. distinct meter that would have no. signaled a kind of song. It's the iambic trimeter. Yeah. You know, primarily bum, 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 right. and so forth. Right, 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 right. All right, so the next part, what do we got here? Well, again, for the sake of time, we're skipping a lot of, of, of stuff. There's a there's a scene where we kind of see what Dionysus is made of or what he's not made of. Um, he, he sees from afar the strange beings in the underworld, the, mm. this famous creature called the Impusa, and he uh, Dionysus cowers behind Xanthius, and mm. uh, he's really just a, a, a complete scaredy cat. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a whole encounter with uh, Eleusinian initiates kind of on their way to uh, their encounter with with death and resurrection aristophanes throws in the kitchen sink he does he is there he's, he's kitchen kitchen sinking here yeah he's absolutely right yeah um but it, finally they make it down to the underworld should we go on to number five what do you uh, think there let's see here yeah i think uh for for time we should we should do this so we got to get to the bottle of oil we do have to get to that that's, that, that's, that's my, my favorite scene uh, mine too right <laughs> right so um Dionysus is still dressed like Heracles. Okay. And um, so thinking that's going to be kind of his ticket into the underworld, they get both get different reactions to this. And so when Dionysus is dressed like Heracles, um, all the people in the underworld remember is, is all the terrible things he went down on there. And so Dionysus forces Xanthius then to dress like Heracles, thinking that he'll get the same treatment. But then whoever comes to the door treats him like a hero. So it's costume change. It's costume change. It's kind of uh, mistaken identity. It's a, it's a classic comic conceit. Mm-hmm. So um, in this scene, Dionysus is terrified of what of what um, people are going to do to him if they think he's Heracles. So he forces Antheus to dress like Heracles, and then the door opens again. And we'll see Heracles gets a very different reaction. Okay. Right. So, uh, Who am I going to be? You're going to be uh, you're going to be the servant here. Okay. And I'll be Xanthius dressed like Heracles. It's true, Heracles. You've come back. Once the goddess heard that you were in town, she ordered us to bake fresh bread, roast an ox, and brew up six pots of beef and bean stew. Oh, and eight different kinds of pie, too. Come in, come in. Uh, thanks, but... 
By Phoebus, I will not let you leave. I forgot to mention the roast chickens, the blueberry pastries, and the sweet wine. Please do come in. That, that sounds great, but, but really... You're kidding, right? You're not getting away. Did I also mention that there's a flute girl waiting for you inside, drop-dead gorgeous, I might add, as well as any number of dancing girls, too? Oh, dancing girls, you say? Heels are clicking and ripe for the picking. Come inside already. They're setting the table, and the steaks are just coming off the grill. Well, I should really say hello. Tell the girls I'm on the way. You there. Attend to the luggage. And so he's, you know, he's yelling at Dionysus, who's playing the role of the servant. And, okay, so I may right. be a little bit lost here. Help me yeah. understand now. Yeah. So this is Xanthius in disguise as Heracles. Yes. And he's getting the royal treatment. Yes. But now Dionysus is going to get the shaft. He's going to get the shaft, right. Even though he's dressed as Heracles. Well, no, so Xanthius is now dressed like Heracles. So Dionysus has forced him to dress like that ah. because... When they first open the door, the service is, oh, you came, to, you stole Cerberus. You know, oh, I, we're going to get you all the right. trouble you caused on. So then the door slams shut. Dionysus says, forget it. You're dressing like Heracles. And it gets the opposite. And it goes back and forth this way. Okay. Um, and uh, it's great. It's, 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 it's ridiculous. It's um, kind of classic slapsticky humor. Oh, I love it. Yep. This is like the Marx Brothers. Yes. Fredonia. Which I think is another great corollary to Aristophanes. Oh, of course. Yes. Right. So where are we headed next? Should we go to the old comedy rap battle? Yes, exactly. Okay. Yep. So it comes down to, uh, so remember, Dinus is down there he's to get Euripides. Mm-hmm. Um, because tragedy's in a sorry state. Yep. Got to bring somebody back. Right. And But when they learn down there, uh, one of the servants, I believe, tells Xanthius, hey, there's a big throwdown coming. Mm. And um, there's, uh, Sophocles is too kind of above the fray to get involved. Okay. But Aeschylus Euripides are going to have at it to really kind of see who's kind of the king of tragedy. So Dionysus says, okay, this is a great uh, opportunity to kind of have my question answered. And as the god of comedy, or as a, sorry, as the god of tragedy, I'll oversee this kind of throwdown rap battle. All right. Yep. And so here I think it's, it, we should probably talk a little bit about kind of the conventional differences between Aeschylus and Euripides and what would have made this such a great agon. Okay. Do you want to say a little bit about Allow that? Allow me. Please. So here I'm going to quote from H.J. Rose, mm-hmm. someone whom I've mentioned before. I've used his work in my classes very often in the public domain. This is the handbook of Greek literature. So he describes Euripides this way. Euripides' gods may be roughly divided into two classes. Some are embodied criticisms of the still prevalent popular views, meaning the Homeric views, the poet's unbelief in them and the actions imputed to them, showing itself in every line they utter. Others are rather personifications of natural or more often of psychological forces, passion, asceticism, madness, fanaticism. For the old themes of divine vengeance and divine justice are substituted the newer ones of right and wrong in general, great laws to which any being, God or man, must conform or stand condemned. Hmm. Right, so um, a much, much more... Secular. Yes, it's, Sec- it's modern. Modern, yeah. So the gods may exist, but what we really are concerned about is how we're going to behave as human beings. Right. This is Euripides' concern. Exactly, right. And those notions of kind of what's right and wrong exist independently of the, of the gods. Definitely. Not, not coming from the gods. No, so this is in contradistinction to Aeschylus. Yes. If I could read a little bit of Rose Please again. Do. Yep. This is page 159. Quote, the chief theme of the Persians and of the trilogy to which the seven against Thebes belonged may be said to be the judgments of God on the sinful and presumptuous, the riddle of the Prometheus. But the poet's most developed and original thought is contained in the Oresteia, that is the the, uh, trilogy about Agamemnon. Yes. Practically, Aeschylus was a monotheist. 
not that he denied the existence of other deities, but that he subordinates all else to Zeus, including the gods who were before him. He had no dogma of the immutability of deity, but seems rather to suppose a sort of divine evolution. The supreme deity is perfectly wise, beneficent, and just. His ways are past finding out is insisted upon in the earliest surviving work. Hmm. I, I think it's really interesting that uh, Rose uses kind of the language of monotheism there. Yes. I hadn't thought of that, but, but that makes a lot of sense. I think it's accurate. Yeah. I think yeah. it's accurate. So Aeschylus is breathing a very different air in a very short period of time from uh, that of Euripides. Yeah. So you said Aeschylus died in... Uh, I think 456. 456, right. So between then and Euripides' greatest success, the world changed a lot. A lot. In Athens. Huge changes, right. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's a great way to kind of set up the, 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 the tremendous contrast between these two these two men. And so using the absurdist fantasy of comedy, we can have them uh, go head to head. Okay, let's do it. All right. So... Um, Let's start this off. Um, we're going to need a third voice. We're going to see, yeah, we need... Because uh, we've got Euripides, we've got Dionysus, and we've got Aeschylus. Okay. Um, so you're going to do two voices here? I'll do two voices. All right. right. So who do you want to be? I'll be Aeschylus. I'll be the representative of old stodginess. Okay. All right. So we'll start this off. Um, so Euripides says, everyone stop talking. I'm not giving up this chair. I'm the better poet, and I know it. Dionysus. Aeschylus, why aren't you saying anything? How wait, do you answer wait, this Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what? That's you're the just, same voice. Oh, I, you wanted me to do like do a like a weirdo like I'm reading to my kids kind of voice. What? What? So you only read to your kids as a weirdo? Well, I mean, you, you wanted me to put on some effect there. Yeah. Esculus, uh, why aren't you saying anything? <laughs> so I don't know what you're throwing. What do you I, want me to do here, Noe? <laughs> it's work. It's working. Okay. This is gold, Winkle. This is gold. gold. All right. Euripides. Where are we? I don't even know where we are. <laughs> Euripides says, please. I oh, know. please. I know what he's up to. He starts every one of his tragedies with his garbage, a long, solemn pause to make sure everyone sees how lofty and pious he is. And Aeschylus was famous for these silent characters yeah. on stage, right? Dionysus, watch your tongue, sir. You might want to take it down a notch. Euripides, look, I've watched and studied this guy for decades. His character is crass and tongueless and toothless. His mouth is a maelstrom of guttural, gribble, grabble, grobbledy grunk. Aeschylus, is that right, you son of a garden goddess? You have the nerve to say that about me, you rag-stitching, gossip-kvetching, beggar-bewitching mountebank. You'll pay for this. Dionysus, calm down, Aeschylus. You'll pop an ulcer. I will not calm down, not before I reveal this poet of cripples and freaks for who he really is. And Dionysus, boys, bring in a black sheep for a sacrifice too sweet. A storm's about to blow. All right. All right, so they're already kind of at each other's throats yes. before the contest even really begins. Right. So, um, where do you want to... I mean, there's, there's a ton of stuff here. Yeah, let's go on to clip 10 clip here. 10. This, this is the... Uh, oh, this is the best part. This is the creme de la creme, right. the flos loctis. Let's have it. So now they're gotten to, to the point where they're not just they're not just trashing each other. They're trading lines mm -hmm. from their, their various tragedies. And, mm -hmm. and Dionysus is going to see how they compare to each other. And I'm going to read a little bit of Greek when we get here. In fact, maybe I should read a little bit of it now. What do you think? Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, this okay. sounds great. Let's, uh, let's do this. So what, where are you going to read from? Well, I'm going to read, this is line 1206 and following okay. from Aristophanes. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to try to imitate the meter to some extent. It's not going to be great, but here goes. So I'll read Euripides and maybe you can read uh, the uh, the Aeschylus part, the Lekuthianapolisan. Sure. All yep. right. So Euripides says, Aiguptas hos hopleistos espartelagos, sun paisi pentekonta nautilo plate, argos katascon. Lekuthianapolisan. Tu titi ein ta lekuthion un klausetai legeteron auto prologon hinekagnopalen. That was Dionysus. Mm -hmm. 
And then we have Euripides again. Dionysus hos thur soisi kai nebron do rice kathaptos and pel kaisi par nason kata peda horewon le kuthion apolesen. And Dionysus, oi moi, the plague methouth is supa taste le kuthu. So we should probably explain to the audience. Right. What this means. So Aeschylus uh, claims that um, Euripides' uh, meter is so predictable that he can end any one of his lines with this phrase, uh, lekuthian apolesa, which is, yeah. he lost his, literally lost his little bottle of oil. Yeah, lekuthian is just a little tiny bottle you'd stick some oil in, lekuthian apolesa. So he says he can take down Euripides, whatever he says, with this little bottle of oil. Right. Right. And so uh, let's let's do a... Let's do clip clip ten here. Okay. Um, so, where do you want to be here? Uh, uh, I should be Aeschylus again. Okay, Aeschylus. Okay. So again, we have um, three voices here. Yes, yeah, so you're going to be Dionysus, and then you're going to be Euripides in two different voices, right? Yeah. Oh, I'll do my best. All right. right. Uh, so Dionysus, he hears about you know Aeschylus's plans. He says, "Oh, this sounds good, Euripides. You've got to recite something." So Euripides says, "Aegyptus, as the tale is told, with fifty children there in his boat." Once in Argos... Mislaid his bottle of pomade. <laughs> That's the Lekuthianapolis. Yeah. yeah. Euripides. What are you doing? What is that? Bottle pomade? Watch yourself. You'll regret it. Dionysus. Eh, recite another one. I want to see him do it again. Euripides. <clears throat> Dionysus, who in skins of fawns, while thirstest midst Parnassian pines, leapt to dance and... Mislaid his bottle of pomade. <laughs> Dionysus. Lekuthianapolis. Ouch, once more bought lo- brought low by a dinky dollop for his due. And so it goes on and on and and, and Euripides just gets angrier and angrier and angrier. From what I can see, it goes on for, if I remember, yeah, 50 lines or 50 so. Lines, right? There's <laughs> almost nothing that, es- that uh, Euripides says that Aeschylus can't polish off with little bottle of oil. Here right. it comes again, He's like Kuthianapolisan. He just takes that gag and he beats it into the ground. Um, That's but right. It's great. Yes. It's great. It's really, really great. Yep. That's that's great stuff. So the the listener really has to go read the play. Mm-hmm. They got to get the Hackett edition or one of these because uh, yours is not widely available yet. It is not. It's on right. my computer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they might have some trouble accessing. They might. It. They might. Unless they're really uh, clever. Yeah. Right. But I mean, it's it's great. It goes on and on like this with this poetic battle with lots of fireworks and there's scatology and vituperation. You got everything. They end up um, actually speaking lines into a scale. And to see, to see who's, who's is heavier, who's whose words are weightier. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> and and Dionysus has to signal them for t- to stop by saying cuckoo. It's just it's just it's just wonderfully ridiculous. It's ingenious. So right. let's let's wrap up and see what happens here at the end. Okay. Right. So um, at the end, Dionysus is still torn. It's like, well, you know, I came down here for Euripides, but now we got Aeschylus, this guy here. And so um, it comes down to uh, Pluto, the god of of Hades, uh, Hades himself. Uh, says you got to you've got to decide. Mm-hmm. So let's do the want to do this last. Clip? Yeah, and yep. I think I think Sophocles is still alive. In fact, this is one of the ways that we know to date the death of Sophocles. Oh, is that right? That he's not down there. That's part of the. That's part theory. of the gag. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. Right. So, um, you've been playing Dionysus all along. Do you want to con- continue with Dionysus? No, why don't you take Dionysus? I'll be Pluto. Okay. Yeah. All right. So Pluto is the god of the dead. So Dionysus says. Mm, both men are dear to me. I can't decide. I don't want either of them to hate me. One I find to be wise, that would be Aeschylus, mm-hmm. and the other I get such a kick out of, as Euripides. And Pluto says, so you're not going to take the man you came down here for? What if I choose the other guy? Well, take whichever you want and go. You wouldn't want your trip to have one big waste of time, would you? 
Bless you, sir. Look, I came down here to get a poet. Why, you ask? Well, so that the city herself might be saved and keep putting her plays on the stage. Okay, then. This is what we'll do. Whichever of you can produce the best advice for the city, that's the man I'll take back with me. And who is that man? That man turns out to be Aeschylus. Aeschylus. Old school. Yeah. Conservative. Exactly. The guy who believes in the traditional gods of the city, the guy that doesn't bring every beggar, slave, misfit, these are Aristophanes' ideas, Mm -hmm. I understand, onto the stage dressed in rags and so forth. Euripides, famous for his plays about unconventional persons. No, Aristophanes says, Dionysus wants Aeschylus. Aeschylus. And so that goes back. Euripides is raging mad. Um, but he's he's shown to be kind of a in some ways uh, light, a lightweight. Mm-hmm. He's got nothing to really offer the city. These modern kids these days, yep. they don't know what a real poetic battle That's is. Right. He's better off down in Hades. So what's the what's the the final conclusion then here? Well, Dionysus he finally decides to take the poet who gives the best advice about how to save the city. Uh, Euripides gives cleverly worded but essentially meaningless answers, while Aeschylus provides more practical advice. And Dionysus decides to take Aeschylus back instead of Euripides. Mm. Pluto allows Aeschylus to return to life so that Athens may be helped in her hour of need. Again, we're in the, the, the dark days of the, of the Peloponnesian War. Um, and invites everyone at the end for a round of farewell drinks. Mm. Um, before leaving, Aeschylus proclaims that Sophocles should have his chair while he is gone, not mm. Euripides. Mm. Yeah? I love it. So let me uh, sum up, if I may, with a, a rose quote. Yes. Yep, while the bloom is still on. Yes. So this is Rose uh, 231. He says... The hero of an Aristophanic play is the average man. Despite all the lusts, passions, and poor thinking of the person, he's fundamentally good and honest. Hmm. Of all surviving Greek authors, Aristophanes is one of the most moral and sympathetic, while remaining in many places, superficially, one of the most indecent. Yes. With all the scatology, the phallic humor, the flatulic and vituperative humor. Right, right. So there you have it, right? The arch conservative who's hilariously funny. That's right. That's um, a, a rare, rare combo. Definitely. Yep. Great stuff. Hey, this was a lot of fun. This was fun. A lot of fun. I want to do more Aristophanes. We'll have to, we'll have to come around <laughs> to clouds because I learned tonight that that's your favorite. Well, I really like it. I like the uh, the thinkery shop. The, yeah. Oh, the it's great. And we'll have to do a comparison of Aristophanes to the Marx Brothers. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Genius. Right. Of course. We, we both of the both of us uh, share that uh, mm-hmm. that interest. Yeah. But really, we got to get out of here for tonight. Don't we do. We? The vomitorium is closing down. Is uh, is someone coming in here to? Um, they got to rechalk the lions here, don't they? In the vomitorium or something? Right, exactly. I thought we had a more permanent place here, but no. Uh, they got to smooth out the pitcher's mound and, and lay down the chalk right. to third base. Right, we're, like. we're right in the, like in the left center field. We don't yeah, belong sweep out here. up the old hot dogs <laughs> and the uh, yeah, yeah, that yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. thing. Get it. Yeah, they got, we got to get out of here so they can get in. Uh, but um, thanks as always to Mishka, our sound engineer. He does such a great job. Puts make, this all together. Makes us sound better than we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else we got to thank? Well, Ken Tamplin, who composed and uh, performed, produced the bumper music for our ads. Also, the, the music at the beginning and the end, where the guitar is played by Mr. Scott Van Zen. Yes. Screaming blues guitarist. You know, he sounds like a cross between Eddie Van Halen and Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yeah, that's uh, Just, very uh, apt. Uh, yes. Uh, well, thank you. Yeah. He's a phenomenal guitarist. So thanks, Scott, for sharing your music with us. Yeah. You want to talk about the Moss Method? Well, of course I want to talk about the Moss Method. So Drop it on us. If you want to go from Neophyte to Erudite, you got to check out mossmethod.com. Mm-hmm. So the program I have developed, you know, now is the time to take advantage of our back to school offer. It's coming up real soon. I'm going to be holding office hours this fall to help you 
learn the Greek language. I mean, let's really get serious about it. If you've made some false starts before, you can have a clean slate now. Check out my program. It's $299, 40 lessons in module one with uh, homework assignments, quizzes, exams, but most of all, my expert guidance to take you all along the way. That sounds great. Uh, listeners, uh, drop us a note. Jeff at adnauseum.com, Dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Don't forget the V. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Give us some uh, show ideas. We've gotten so many wonderful responses from mm-hmm. you all. Um, it's the best way. If you want to be get a shout out, if you yeah. want to be mentioned on air, right? Um, let us know who you are. Give right. us a little bit of criticism. Yeah. We like to praise more, let's be honest. That's but, true. You know, just, just be frank. We, be, be frank. Absolutely. Let us hear it. Yep. All right, Jeff, so what else do we have before we wrap up episode 50 today? There's some sort of thing, isn't there? There's some sort of special thing? Well, at the beginning of this episode, one of us mentioned that the other one ought to give him a box of Twinkies. Remember that? Yeah. To celebrate the golden anniversary? Yeah, you owe me the box, I believe. Well, whatever. We got something better for these folks. And Oh, yeah, that's right. Stickers. That's right. Yes, odd nauseum stickers. Odd nauseum sticker. It's a nice little two-by-two sticker with nice little rounded edges. It's square. And here's what we're going to do, listeners. we got to pay the bills, so... Go to our site where we offer our merch and add one to your little cart. Three ninety nine. It's an impulse buy, right? Right. Right. Can, can you get a donut for three ninety nine? Um. Oh yeah. Are we a pretty special? It's got to uh, be a special donut. donut. Yeah. Bacon exactly. on top. Right. 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 Add that to your cart and uh, limited edition. We've got five hundred of these printed, and uh, we will send you the ad nauseum sticker with a signature. Uh, we're getting some uh, some flunky to do this for us. No, right? no. You and I are going to hand sign. We're handing. We're hand signing all of them. All five hundred of them. All right. Personalized note three ninety nine. Show the world you're taking in the classics and keeping it down. Keeping it down. So what's on tap for next week? Well, Jeff, it's TBD again. TBD it's again. To be determined. Right. Yep. We just want to hold things in abeyance and make sure we give the audience a great show. Sounds good. So, Jeff, you have the gustatory parting shot this week. Yes. This comes from a certain Richard Wood Baldwin, who once said, "Cannibals love their neighbors." Indeed, they did. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks. <laughs>